Thank you, brother, for leading us in worship. Thank you for those that serve with you and uh, help remind us and frame our approach to God and our approach to the circumstances we have in life. So thank you, Brother Greg, and thank you for all of you that serve every single Sunday. I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. I am so glad that you are here. If you have a Bible, something that you can turn on or something that you can open up and that you'll join me in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We've been walking through this letter of 2 Peter together as a church on Sunday morning. And so we were just going to continue on. So this is going to be a little different for me about doing this kind of stuff. I'm not really quite astute, so you just have to bear with me. So 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning. We've been walking through. I can't talk with my hands as much this time. Ooh, that's going to cut it down. Okay, so we, we've been walking through this book together on a Sunday morning, so we're just going to continue on where we were off last time, and so we're going to start in a few moments in 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 17 and work all the way through the rest of the chapter this morning. But before that, I want to just kind of set the stage of where we're going to be at in the text. 1973, in Sweden, a man walked into a bank with the intentionality or with the intention of robbing the bank. He goes in, he begins the bank robbery, the bank robbery goes bad, it becomes a botched bank robbery. And so in an attempt to try to salvage something from his failed attempt, he takes, he takes four hostages. Three women, one man. He takes them, he puts them in the bank vault, and as you imagine when you've seen the movies and seen the TV shows, then the hostage situation begins. The negotiations begin, and throughout the course of this hostage negotiation, the man arranged to have one of his friends released from prison. That friend then came and helped him in the hostage situation. At the end of the ordeal, four people were held hostage for six days in the bank vault in Sweden. You may say, what's so big about that? Well, the peculiar thing, the interesting thing, was once the hostage situation was over, and once the hostages were released, and once the two men were then brought up on charges, and once the authorities then tried to prosecute the two men, something unseen and unheard of happened. The four hostages would not cooperate with the authorities. And not just the fact that the four hostages wouldn't cooperate with the authorities, the four hostages then began to raise money in the legal defense of those that took them captive. It was such a phenomenon that you had all these people there in Sweden trying to understand what exactly happened. Four people taken hostage, of, not of their own will, even taken hostage in a failed bank heist, and the next thing you know, they find themselves actually defending the people that were seeking to do them harm. It became known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And it's not just an isolated event. You can go back into history and you look back as far as 1933 when a woman by the name of Mary McElroy at the age of 25 years old was abducted from her home by five grown men, taken to an abandoned barn, chained to the wall, mistreated and abused, and then later when she was freed, she actually defended the four men saying they were just businessmen in fact, later going to visit them in jail while they're awaiting the punishment for their crime. One more, 
1974, a woman by the name of Patty Hearst was abducted by an urban guerrilla warfare unit there in California. They abducted her somehow through the brainwashing system. She ended up recording where she renounced her family. She renounced her identity, took on a new name. And even in 1974, she was captured helping the very people that abducted her, held her hostage and held her captive. She was helping them rob banks in San Francisco. She also tried to use the defense of the Stockholm Syndrome. And later on, President Bill Clinton actually pardoned her because he said that she was a victim of the Stockholm Syndrome. But this entire idea of the Stockholm Syndrome is confusing. Because you, on one part, you have the aggressors. You have those that are seeking to do other people harm. And then on the other hand, you have those that are being harmed, that are being mistreated, and yet somewhere in the circumstance... A mistaken identity occurs. The victim, the hostage, the one that is being oppressed starts to see the oppressor as the friend instead of the enemy. And I wonder if this morning, if Peter isn't writing to an early church because he fears for Stockholm Syndrome in the church. He fears that the church might have mistaken who the enemy is in its days. He fears that the church might be actually defending the very people that are seeking to do harm to the church. We are living in a day and age that there are a variety of satanic ideologies, satanic philosophies around us. You may hear me say later on this morning, Luciferian. It's just an idea of saying that there are ideologies and philosophies that are coming from Satan that are infiltrating the home, they're infiltrating the church, and we get to the point that we aren't sure which is from God and which is from Satan, to the point that you even have people in the church today, in the world today, that are actually defending godless ideologies and godless philosophies because they think that those are better than what God has given us. And even though Peter didn't have this frame of mind when he wrote to them in the early uh, part of the first century there to those early believers, there's a problem when the church or when Christians or when believers have a mistaken identity of who the enemy is. Yes. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, he is talking about these false teachers. He's talking about these false prophets. He started off in chapter 1 talking about our identity, who we are in Christ. And then as he comes into chapter 2, he talks about this identity of the false teacher and the false prophet. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. He says there is a presence. You have these false teachers. You have these false prophets around you. Now what is the problem? What, what, what is the danger with them being there? He says in verse 2, they deny the truth. So the danger of these false prophets, the danger with these false teachers is that they're denying the truth of God. And not just that, but verse 9, he says they're practicing unrighteousness. Verse 10, he says that they are brazen in the rebellion against God. Verse 14, he talks about them being a cursed people. And then in verse 15, he just simply says they are a people that have lost their way. You have these false prophets, you have these false teachers all around you. And the danger is, is that they are people that are not pursuing after God and not pursuing after the things that lead to God. Now we may be here this morning and may say, well, why in the world does that affect us? Because brothers and sisters in the church today, we have so many people vying for your attention, so many people vying for your heart, so many people vying for your devotion. And then if you do not know who are the good and who are the bad, if you cannot tell friend from foe, then we are in danger of being led in all kinds of Luciferian ideologies and philosophies today. 
So Peter is riding in and he's riding to the church and he's trying to warn them and he's trying to give them understanding of the danger that is around them. So starting verse 17, he's going to finish up this little discourse when it comes to the false teachers and the false prophets, but he is going to explain to them and he's going to show them and you see there in the notes or they're going to be behind me up here on the screen. He talks to them about how do we know the false teachers and the danger that it poses to the church. So I'm going to see you, I want you to see with me this morning, he's going to talk about two identifiers of the false teachers, and then he's going to talk about two warnings for the church. Some of this you may say, well, it's just rehashing, but brothers and sisters, if Peter thinks it's important enough to repeat and to remind, then we should heed the warning this morning. So starting in verse 15, I'm going to read aloud. If you'll follow along in your copy of God's word, listen to how Peter teaches us this morning. He says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For then the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled to them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of unrighteousness, or have never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. Two identifiers that I want you to see with me that Paul points out is how we identify the enemy. How do we identify the false teachers? How do we identify those that are around us seeking us to be uh, deceived and seeking to get us to follow in these ideologies and philosophies that are not from God? The first identifier is in what they say. If you look back up there in verse 17, he says, for speaking loud boast of folly. Now this whole word is just dripping with explanation and dripping with imagery of what is going on with these false teachers. It's not just that they're secretly, quietly trying to interject their opinions. They are loud and they are making these boasts. They are making these giant claims saying, well, I know you should believe me. I have knowledge. You should believe me. They're making all these outlandish claims. And at the end of it, Peter says, they're all foolish because they're not based upon the truth of God's word. In other words, I put there in your notes, they're making these claims of knowledge. They're saying, well, I believe this. Well, I know this. And my experience tells me that. Or we have have studies and we have statistics and we have all of these things that point to that. These false teachers are there and you know them by what they say. You know them because what they say is not aligning with God's word. You know them because what they say is not in keeping step with the truthfulness of God's word. You know them because what they say is they are making claims about themselves or claims about things that they say they know that do not align with the word of God. Not only do they make claims of knowledge, but they make claims of science. Once upon a time, everybody believed. Well, if that is what the science says, then that is what the science says. Until people understood that you could leverage science to control and manipulate people. And then science became relative. I realize that in this room, there can be a wide variety of opinions when it comes to masks. But you know, part of the 
hesitation that people had when it came to the issue of masks is you had some people on this side of the aisle saying, well, the science says. And then you had these other people on this side of the aisle saying, the science says. Well, if science is empirical and if science is true, then two things cannot be the same and be different. And we had this thing going on. We have people that said, I have claims. I have the science on my side. And then somebody is coming behind them and saying, oh, well, well, I have science that says something different. And so Peter is saying that you will know these false teachers. You will know these false prophets. You will know the enemy by what they say. They will make these claims of knowledge. They will make these claims of science. He says there in verse 18, for they are speaking loud boast of folly. They're making all these outlandish claims and they're making all of these statements that seem to be questionable on the surface. But it's not just that. The second part of verse 18 says that they entice by sensual passions. Now that word there in my translation that's saying sensual, it's talking about vice. It's talking about behavior. It's talking about the things that really you and I like to do. That really that you and I want to do. I was over at Greg and Aaron's house on Friday. There was a group of ladies in there, and a conversation came up, and I, I was uh, admitting my affinity for croutons. And it was surprising. These, these young ladies were like, croutons, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, well, what is your favorite snack food? Well, I like this, and I like that. Oh, so it's okay for you to have your favorite snack food, but it's not okay for me to have my favorite snack food. And your favorite snack food is sanctified, and it's all righteous, and it's all good, and everything else. But my favorite snack food, oh, it's not good at all, blah, blah, blah. And it's one of those things that sometimes we can get, we can get all of us, where my opinion is the right opinion, my thoughts are the only right thoughts, and my truth is better than anybody else's truth. And we make these claims of science, we make these claims of knowledge, and even we start to follow, it says even the false teachers are trying to entice us, they're trying to entice us by things that we desire. It's, I put there in your notes, claims that are desired. And so Peter is saying that you will know that these enemies are trying to lure you, trying to deceive you, but because they, they keep doing all these things that are flattering, that are stroking your ego, that are trying to get to the things that secretly you desire deep down inside. I want to feel good. I want to feel wanted. I want to feel important. I want to feel included. All these things that the enemy knows. So they're making claims and loud boasts that get you where you're at. You understand that Satan reads your mail, don't you? Satan knows. Satan knows your weaknesses. Satan knows your temptations. Satan knows your desires. Satan knows where your weaknesses reside and Satan can get a hold of you. So here in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is writing to the church and he is telling them, beware of the enemy. Beware of the, uh, the, the attempts of the enemy. Be aware of the uh, attack of the enemy. Understand that what this enemy doing is they will say things that sound good. They will say things that sound almost right. They will, sound, they will say things that sound plausible. But be careful. At the end of it, it completely opposes the word of God. Let me give you an example. 2017, a man by the name of Luke Bryan wrote a song. Well, I don't, I don't know if he wrote a song. He released a song. And some of you are Luke Bryan fans for some reason in the room. And so he released this song in 2017. And let me read for you a couple of the words from the song. The song is entitled, Most People 
are good. It says in the song, I believe most people are good and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Now, some of you may have heard those lyrics before, and you're like, oh, okay, so what's so wrong with that? I don't understand what the big deal is with it. I don't understand uh, what, what, why would he be bringing that up? What would be the danger? This one-handed thing ain't great. So the idea is, the idea that I want to point you to is what does the Bible say? Well, Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So the danger is, is we listen to a common uh, popular song by Luke Bryan and we say, oh yeah, yeah, we understand. You should love who you love. Ain't nothing to be ashamed of. I believe most people are good. And that sounds right. And there's a nice little melody and people just sway along with the music and all that shows so sweet. The problem is, the problem is, is that it's not biblical. And in the eyes of God, it's not true. And it's not a matter of you and I being the judge and the arbiter. It's not a matter of you and I trying to say what is right and wrong. God's word says that no one is righteous. No, not one. None of us are good apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. None of us are mostly good, halfway good, a little good. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us needs saved from our sin. Every single one of us need the forgiveness of God in our lives. Every single one of us need God. And it's not a matter of saying you love who you love. Oh, no, no. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 34 says, the first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind. And the second was like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus made it very clear who I am to love. I am to love God first and I'm to love my neighbor second. But you will see things. You will hear things. And you will see things in our society and our culture and you will know that they are, you know they are questionable. You will know that you should take them with all kinds of speculation when you hear what they say. But it's not just hearing what they say. Peter goes on there in chapter two and talking about what they promise. So it's not just these loud boasts of folly that Peter is referring them to. He's saying by the things they say, you should be able to identify who they are. He doesn't say just by what they say, but it's also by what they promise. So look with me in verse 19. Because he talks about this in verse 19. He says, they promise them freedom. Now the they is the false teachers. The they are the false prophets that are there seeking to lead them astray. And the them are the people that they are talking to, whether they are believers or they're almost believers or they think they're believers, whatever the case may be. It's the early church that is influential or I'm sorry, impressionable. Is that the right word? Impressionable. It's the idea that this early church is still trying to understand how they identify the world around them. And so the they, the they promise them are the false teachers promising them the early church, those new believers young in the faith. They promise them freedom. What is freedom? Have you ever thought about that? I remember I realized that Mel Gibson and William Wallace and he gets on there, give me my freedom. And, you, and you'll hear movies and you can look up the definition and, the, and simply in a, in a dictionary, freedom means liberty. It means the freedom to do something. But in the reality, in our humanity, what is freedom? 
I was there not that many years ago when I thought to myself, I can't wait to get out of the house because then I'll have freedom. And now I find myself in a season of life that I'm looking at some young men and these young men are looking at me and like, no offense, dad, but I can't wait to get out of this house because then I'll have freedom. And regardless of which side you are, you young people, you can get out of the house, you're still not going to be free. <laughs> you're still going to work for somebody. You're still going to owe somebody. You're still going to be paying for somebody. You are still going to be under somebody's authority. It's cheaper with mom and dad than it is by yourself. <laughs> but you learn that the hard way, unfortunately. But the idea of freedom. So it says there in the text in verse 19, they promised them freedom. But it never, Peter never gives us what exactly that freedom meant to entail. So in no way do I want to take liberties that aren't there. Or no way do I want to misuse the text. But just think with me about this idea of freedom. On one level, we might think, well, freedom means that we are free from anybody's control. We are free from anybody's authority. No one can tell me what to do. The only problem with that is every single one of us have been created by a creator. And thus, that creator then can define his creation. And that creator then can can then define the rules for his created. But it says there in verse 19 that they promise them freedom. Now, I found myself thinking this last week, well, what in the world does he mean by freedom? I, I'm going to take a stab at this, and this is what I think. This is, my, this is my opinion when it comes to what he was talking about freedom, and I get this from the entire context of the passage. He is talking about their identity in Christ. He's talking about their relationship to God. He is talking about the presence of false teachers. He's talking about the dangers of the false teachers and the false prophets. Chapter three, he is then going to talk about the future of the believers in the eyes of God. So this is all informed by the context of the passage. But I think that one of the things the false teachers were trying to point them in is freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. It says there in verse 19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of Corruption. This idea of corruption is not the fact that you are, have dirty clothes on or that you haven't taken a bath or maybe you've got a smudge or maybe you got some tartar on your teeth or something like that. The idea of corruption is that you have a sinful, you have a sinful life, a sinful behavior, a sinful pattern of life, and you have guilt before the eyes of God. Every single one of us, the Bible tells us, has fallen. Every single one of us, the Bible tells us, has sinned against God. And every single one of us, the Bible tells us, has an opportunity to believe in God to believe in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf by going to the cross and paying the penalty, dying, being in the grave for three days, arising from the grave, every single one of us has the opportunity not only to call out to God, but every single one of us has the opportunity to be saved from our sin. So really, it's not just a matter of freedom from rent or freedom from having to go to work. No, deeper down, there is this desire to be free from sin. How much freeing would that be if there was no such thing as sin? And you see, that is what the world is trying to do today. The world is trying to say, instead of us understanding that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, I know what we'll do. We will change the definition of what sin is. See, if we can change the definition of what sin is, and no longer is sin this standard, now we are going to change the definition. So now sin is this standard. So therefore, if you're over here in this area, you have all of a sudden stopped being a sinner. 
And now you're free. You're not under the authority. You're not under the sovereignty. You are not under the judgment of God because you are now free from sin. And I believe, and I suggest to you that at the core of many of what we are doing in our social conservative or not our social culture and environment today is people trying to redefine the standards that God has given us so they can redefine what sin is. So there's this freedom. They're offering them freedom, freedom. They're offering them freedom when they are not free themselves. They're offering them freedom from sin and they're also offering them freedom from guilt. That's the byproduct of sin. When you find yourself realizing that you're a sinner, then you feel guilty. The cure for it is two things. Either you stop sinning or you change the definition of what sin is, so therefore you're not doing anything wrong. We have an entire culture, an entire, gen- entire generation that is trying to redefine what is right and what is wrong. They're trying to redefine morality. They're trying to redefine what humanity is in the eyes of God. They're trying to change the book that God wrote so they can change their standing in this world. And Peter says you have these false teachers and these false prophets that are promising you freedom from the authority, from the judgment from the standards, and from the Word of God. Well, how does that look like in today's time, preacher? Not only do they offer us freedom from sin, but they also offer us freedom from guilt. And when you are no longer in the wrong, then you no longer feel guilty. And when you no longer feel guilty, you no longer have any responsibility. So if there are things that you're doing that you're living in in contradiction to the Word of God, then simply instead of saying, you are wrong, you need to repent and get right where God wants you to be, you just simply say, I'm going to change it so therefore it's not my fault. I am not guilty of it. I am not responsible for it. I can't. Help it, which is why we hear language like, I was born this way. Or why we hear language like, I believe that this is the right thing to do. Or language like, I'm just born to be this. Because we have changed the standards. We have changed the definition so that we can free ourselves from the reality of sin, from the reality of guilt, and free ourselves from the responsibility that our behavior then brings. Let me give you an example of this. Some of this, if I step on your toes, you can apologize to me later. There's a book out there. A book out there called The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's considered by many to be the gold standard, the Bible of the mental health community. Now, I want you to hear me from the onset that I'm not trying to say that mental health is not a reality. What I will tell you, though, is that I have read volumes and volumes, and I would love for you to read volumes of volumes that draws into question the airtight case that the mental health community tries to resent. In other words, what I would tell you this morning is that based upon my reading and based upon my understanding, much of the mental health community's positions are really mental myths. Opinions, ideas, not nearly much as based in science as they try to present. So you have this mental myth community out there, and they have this DSM, this fifth edition, released in 2013. You go through that book, and you find table 18, and there is a condition. The the condition is called oppositional defiant disorder. 
Let me read to you about how they define oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiant, defiant disorder is a condition in which a child displays a continuing pattern, an uncooperative, defiant, hostile, and annoying behavior towards people in authority. That's every child that doesn't get their way. Every child that doesn't get their way then says, well, I am going to be hostile because I don't get my way. They don't know exactly what causes ODD, but it's believed that it might be a combination of biological, genetic, or environmental factors that might play a role. So then they come down the DSM and they try to say, well, now here are the symptoms to identify and to diagnose. So you have your, your uh, uh, psychometrist, is that right? Psychometrist that you have on public schools, or you have psychologists, or you have the psychiatrist, and they'll come in, they'll have all these rubrics and metrics to say, here's how we're going to identify and diagnose whether a person is doing is suffering from this condition or this disorder or not. And so they'll do something like this. Does the person lose their temper easily? Frequent outburst of anger. They're touchy or easily annoyed. They're angry or disrespectful. They're argumentative or they have defiant behavior or they argue with adults. Where you at, Karina? Anybody, right? Anybody. All of you ladies on that road, any of you ladies at any time could say by your parents, ha, huh, they have oppositional defiant disorder. And may I tell you, based upon the opinion of your preacher, they might have that, but at the base, they have a heart that is not disciplined to the things of God. And yet we will try to give them a label. We will try to give them a diagnosis so that we can then give them a disorder. So therefore they are not living in a, in a disobedient, unbehaved way. They are now victims and they are now no longer responsible for their actions. They're no longer responsible for their behavior and they're now no longer responsible for who they are. And because it is their problem that they can't control, now the parents are not in responsibility for that. And so now everybody says, well, it's not our fault. So what do you do about it? Well, there's several things. They come up with cognitive behavioral therapy. They come in with parent management training. All these ways to try to deal with it. There's not a secret pill that you can take to try to address it. But the world will come around us and they will say, well, you know what? Instead of trying to say we should treat our children to respect and to follow after God, we should teach our children to follow after the things of God. We understand Proverbs 22, 15 says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Instead of understanding that in our rebellion and in our sinful state, we want to rebel against authority, parents included. We just simply say, will you follow into our what we're saying and we will promise you a solution? We will promise you a resolve. We will promise you that you will not feel guilty for what you're dealing with in life. Brothers and sisters, may I tell you this morning, the false teachers and the false prophets out there are trying to change the definition of right and wrong. They're trying to change the definition of humanity. They're trying to change the definition of the created order before God. And we know that when they say these things and we say, yeah, but the Bible says that all children, all children are in rebellion against God. The Bible tells us that even adults rebelled against God. The Bible tells us that rebellion is a sin before God. And the Bible tells us that it is the parents that are in to teach the children not how to obey the parents first and foremost, but to obey God. Because God's not going to look at us when the judgment day comes and he's going to look at Spence and Spence says, well, you know what, God, I realize that you said don't do this, but God, I had a disorder. 
God's going to say, yes, it's called sin. And I gave you a solution. It's called Jesus. And if you did not choose to follow after Jesus, then you are now guilty of your sin. And the penalty is eternal. So there's two identifiers that we have when it comes to the false teachers. Now let me quickly, quickly, I got like four minutes, quickly give you the two warnings for the church. So there's some warnings for the church. He talks about these false teachers. He talks about how we identify these false teachers. But then he also turns his direction there in verse 20 and verse 21. And then he talks to the church and he says, let me warn you. Let me warn you about what you're dealing with. You know these false teachers. You know these false prophets are out there. And woe be you if you do not guard against it. Verse 20, he talks about, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled. And the first warning that he gives to the church is that engagement leads to entanglement. Engagement leads to entanglement. What is he talking about? Well, you, have, you ever heard the word dabble? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dabble in something. It, 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 it kind of comes from the idea of putting your fingers in a dish and you just kind of run your fingers around and you're stirring up the water. And we dabble in things. And sometimes we dabble in reading our horoscope. Sometimes we dabble over here in a little bit of vice. Sometimes we dabble over here in a little behavior. Sometimes we, we dabble over here and watch some things on television. Sometimes we dabble over here and we listen to some, 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 some quacks try to tell us how to live. Sometimes we'll dabble in things, but oftentimes that dabbling leads to drivel. D-R-I-V-E-L. What drivel, if you look it up in the dictionary, what drivel means is something that is foolish, something that is childish, something that is immature. In other words, what I want you to hear from what Peter is saying is that when the church begins to dabble in the Luciferian ideologies and the philosophy of this world, when we get to dabble in all of the things the culture says matter, and they say are true, when we begin to dabble in these things, we start sounding as foolish and immature and ignorant as children. So he says, be careful, be careful. This dabbling will lead to driveling. Not just the dabbling leads to driveling, but the capitulation. The capitulation is, if you look up in the dictionary, the capitulation is when you give up, when you stop resisting, when you begin to accept. The capitulation leads to compromise. That's why he says there in verse 20, they have escaped the defilements of the world. And as soon as they got away from the influence and as soon as they got away from the allurements, as soon as they got away from the control and, and that lifestyle they're in, what did they do? They went right back to it because they thought that we could control it. In the addiction community, you call that a relapse. Somebody that gets past the initial stages of addiction, they get past that initial stages of that control and that overwhelming sense in their life. And, and so you're an alcoholic and you've been sober. You've been sober for six months and you get around somebody and they're just going to have a drink and you're thinking, you know, I've been sober. I've been dry six months. Just one drink's not going to hurt. Just one beer's not going to hurt. And the next thing you know, you start dabbling. Before the night's over, you're driveling. The same thing happens. God convicts us of a sin. God says, get away from it. And then you and I say, well, just a little bit. Just, just 30 minutes. Just one show. Just, just, just one video. And we forget. The engagement leads to entanglement. 
Now, some people would say, oh, well, you know, what's the, what's the problem with that? You need to engage the culture around you. And yes, we do need to engage the culture around us, but we need to understand when we go into the culture around us, the culture around us is not pointing us to God. The culture around us is pointing us to the Lucifer of this world. The culture around us is trying to say, you need to come and get on board with us. It started off with a slippery slope, the Burgerfeld decision, when they tried to redefine what marriage was. And at that time, people said, be careful, this is a slippery slope. And they said, oh no, 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 this is just a one-time thing. We get this and we'll be done. And then they continue and they continue and they continue and they continue. Look at the anachron or the uh, letters LGBT. It started off with being L, then it went to LB, then it went to LBG, and then it went to LBGT. And now you can just add whatever alphabet you want after that. I put the C for confused. I I say, you know what, this is just going to continue coming into a question. So now you'll hear somebody and it's, we are going to have a race to try to be who can be the most politically correct. So I'm going to say LGBTQI garbage. It's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. They want you to give, they want you to give, they want you to give, and they want you to give. We do not define what truth is. God has defined it for us. So he says, be careful, church. Be careful, church, that when you get on the straight and narrow, and be careful, church, when you get to pursuing after God, that you don't find yourself going right back to what God has already led you out of. So he tells them engagement leads to entanglement, and then the second one, and we're through, direction determines destination. Where do I get that from? Well, I get that from verse 21. He says, for it were better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then the picture that Peter is giving them is they are heading in this direction. They know the truth. They know where they're supposed to be going. They know what God wants in their lives. And yet at some point they go, you know what? Now let's take a turn. Let's go over here. Let's, let's go off in this direction. Let's go down in that direction. And they think that that direction will get them to their destination. I mean, let's just think simply here for a moment. You leave out of the church and you walk out of these doors. You take a right-hand turn and you go down to the intersection. And at the intersection, you are going to take a left and you are going to continue left as far as you can go. Will you get to Bev's? No. Because the two directions aren't going the same way. And yet in our lives today, we start to think, well, you know what? I can go in whatever direction I want and there are multiple directions to God. No, Jesus says in John 14, 6, there is only one way to the Father and that is through me. He is very clear that it's not a matter of you get to choose your direction. But the reality is, and I put this there in your notes, everyone is going in a direction. Every single one of you in this room is going in a direction. I don't care if you are five years old or 50 years old. Every single one of us are going in a direction. But, and you see this there in your notes, no one can go in two directions at the same time. So what is Peter saying right there in verse 21? Peter is reminding them that when it comes to the direction there, is the destination they are headed to glory to God, faithfulness to God, obedience to God? Or is the direction they're going to is popularity? Approval ratings, bottoms in the seat, acclaim from people. All of these things this world says are important. So Peter says, be careful, church. Be careful how much you begin to dabble and get entangled with the philosophies and ideologies that are from Satan and are Luciferian in nature. Be careful, church, in the direction that you are going. Because not all directions lead people to Jesus. 
Be careful, church, on how you pursue in your life because, because people are following after you. Let me give you some good news. Let me give you this last part. Good news. First one is this. God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned us. Yeah, I know Peter is talking about in verse 17, 18, 19, he's talking about this presence of false teachers, these, these false prophets that are around us. And he talks about there in 20 and 21 and 22, he, he's talking about the danger, the danger if the church loses their way. And you might say, oh my gracious, so in the light of where we're living, in the light of everything that's going on, we can't help it. There's nothing that we can do. But the reality is, is God has not abandoned us. Look back up in chapter one and verse three. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things. It's that God is still in. God is still on the scene. God is still in your life. God is still in control. Not only is that good news that God has not abandoned us, but then also believers have been given all things. It says right there, back in verse three, uh, uh, verse three of chapter one, he has given us all things. There is nothing that you and I need to live faith before the eyes of God that God has not given us. We have it. We have what we need to serve God. But then look at verse 10 of the same chapter in chapter 1. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The third point of good news I want to leave you with is that practice produces faithfulness. So you say, I want to learn what it means to be faithful in the eyes of God. Practice the disciplines of God. I want to learn what it's like to be able to see the false teachers and the false prophets. I want to be able to hear when I hear Heresy and things that do not align with Scripture. I want to know, I want to be able to identify that. I want to hear them. Practice the things that produce faithfulness. Practice the things that lead to faithfulness. I want to be on guard. I do not want to be led astray. I do not want to be following into that system of chasing every ideology that comes around. I want to be faithful to God. Practice the things of God. My fear this morning is that we have too many people in the church today that are suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. The enemy is all around us. And instead of identifying the enemy and calling the enemy out, we are defending the enemy. We are more familiar with the enemy than with our Savior. We are more content and comfortable with the enemy than our Savior. And we are a people that have stopped understanding who the enemy is. Bow your heads with me.